From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show, though, following up on something we talked about yesterday, and that is the closing of the J.J. Bean in the Woodward's building. Every one and a half months, we have a broken window or a broken door. At least once a month, we have something stolen, and that's being reduced because we moved everything that normally we let our customers touch. We moved off the front shelving. We've had a number of incidences of harassment with our staff. Our washrooms are not for public use. And there is a tremendous amount of drug addicts, and that might be profiling, but you can, if you spend any time there, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. People that look like they're strung out on drugs that are trying to use our washroom, and they cause much destruction in our washrooms, and they don't respect our needle boxes. Uh, We had an incident just two weeks ago where one of our senior people was there, stopped somebody from coming in the washroom, and they took a milk container the lid off and threw it at my manager. That was John Neat, the CEO of JJ Bean, talking to us yesterday, just a couple of hours after the JJ Bean that he owns, that he is the CEO of. They closed it down as of noon yesterday for the reasons that he just mentioned there. We also heard from some listeners, people in the area, saying that's not the only business. They know the Starbucks also closed a few months ago. So joining us now to talk more about this is Wally Wargalette, the executive director of the Gastown Business Improvement. Society. Wally, thanks so much for coming back on the show. You're welcome, Joe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. What do you think the impact is, or what is your response to hearing about this latest coffee shop closing down again for those reasons? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly, you know, disappointed that, uh, you know, John and JJ Bean made this decision. Um, interestingly enough, um, I was listening to some of those issues that John was talking about. Uh, unfortunately, that coffee shop is outside the Gastown BIA, believe it or not, just because of the strange borders uh, that the BIAs uh, make up. But, uh, you know, the, the Gastown BIA, we actually have our Gastown Patrol uh, a team that we hire through Paladin who helps um, our members with issues that, you know, John was mentioning and, you know, it's uh, it's a shame that that he didn't, you know, reach out to us to, to get some help there. Uh, maybe we could have helped with some of those issues, but I can tell you um, that team really is a is a positive force and, and help to uh, maintain calm in our neighborhood. Uh, we, you know, you mentioned Starbucks left, but Lee's Donuts is moving in this fall, and I can tell you from a retail uh, health perspective, from the vacancy, uh, we're we're under five percent. So uh, Gastown is is full, it's vibrant. Um, we have uh, others making investments in this neighborhood, coming up with a big development. Uh, hopefully that will be happening soon at 131 Water Street, another uh, development with the Army-Navy project. So uh, we're very optimistic, um, but concerned about all the things that John mentioned. You know, vandalism is still still an issue that is impacting all of Vancouver, to, to be frank, Joe. Hmm. He also talked a lot about how things really changed during the pandemic. And maybe it is more specific to the Woodward's building or the surrounding area. And I get what you're saying about the the boundaries of the BIAs. But he talked about how it was far more vibrant. There were more people. People were out and about and kind of being the eyes and ears of the streets. And Mm -hmm. there was that sense of community. And once that was gone, this, this became the norm, what he described. And it never really fully returned. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it, it certainly is, 
10 times better than it was during um, during COVID. Uh, we see the, the streets of, of Gastown really vibrant and, and, and sometimes very packed around, uh, you know, Water Street and Cordova. So, yes, there is no question that the pandemic highlighted some of the social issues that our city is facing. And, and to be frank, every large um, city in, in North America is facing. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we take, um, well, we're, we're optimistic that some of the provincial investments that are being made um, are actually going to make a difference. Um, I can tell you that we have a great relationship. As all of the, the BIAs have a great relationship with the Vancouver Police Department, and we have seen more foot patrols in our neighborhoods. Uh, so all of this, I think, will, will help us in the future. That does not mean we're not going to have stumbling blocks along the way. Um, I think it's the other reason why um, myself and uh, Tricia Barnes and Terry Smith and a couple other executive directors two years ago um, we had started the conversations around trying to get some provincial support uh, to our businesses. And that was just announced last week. And I'm not sure if you heard about that, Jill, or not. Mm-hmm. But $10.5 million committed to helping businesses impacted by vandalism. Um, so, you know, we're, we're seeing some... We're seeing some positive change. We're seeing some real investment from the province. And to be frank, um, the, uh, what you just said is the key to this, and that is we need feet on the street. We need people in our neighborhoods. Uh, we don't want folks to avoid coming downtown. Uh, that's not going to help anyone. We, we, need, we need the support. We really do. And when you talk about that, too, and, and I get what you're saying, and I know there were a lot of businesses that said they really appreciated the $10.5 million and the money going to fight this. But I, I know there's also that level of frustration, isn't there? Like John Neat was saying, they're getting their window smashed every every six weeks. There's something broken. And it's, it's one thing to have money to fix that. But also, wouldn't it be great if we were looking at this issue or doing something to stop that from happening in the first place? There's, there's really no question. I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a politician, but I can tell you if I was running for office, the, the, the main tenant I would run on is we need uh, better mental health care for everyone. We need affordable access for everyone. Uh, if, if COVID taught us anything, it really highlighted that there are some real struggles out there. Um, and those mental health struggles lead to addiction struggles, which lead to some of the social unrest that we see. And if we're going to really care for our society, we have to look at those core issues impacting people and finding real solutions for them. And I'm hoping that the close to $1 billion investment that the province is making around supportive housing and um, addiction care leads to just overall mental health care. It isn't, you know, it isn't just folks on the street. Everyone has been, I think, impacted in a mental health perspective from COVID. And we need a real um, commitment to getting care to everyone who needs it quickly and affordably. And when you talk about the street patrols, uh, the, the Paladin patrols and uh, the fact that those those are helping out, does that change the neighborhood, though, even if you're, say, a resident or if you're a tourist? There, there is something about seeing security guards posted at the doorways to buildings, uh, buildings that are keeping their doors locked and letting people in only if they ring a bell or if they show up and, and rather than people wandering in and, and having to have those patrols uh, in a neighborhood. 
Well, I mean, I, I can tell you that we've had it for uh, well over a decade. And I, I think maybe at one point in time that may have been that way. But I actually think um, the, the work that our team does, the Gastown Patrol, yes, certainly they're security folks, but they're also ambassadors to the neighborhood, showing people, you know, you know where a restaurant is or a tourist attraction is. Um, they do wellness checks. So uh, I actually think we see them more as a, uh, a need in our in our community and, and a positive influence, not a negative. One. Uh, just to go back to something you said as well, because we did have a, a listener call in yesterday when we were talking about the JJ Bean saying, yeah, we, we also lost the, the Starbucks closed down. You mentioned that Lee's Donuts is going in there. Is that Does that say more about maybe restructuring and, and what Starbucks is doing as opposed to it not being a desirable place? Because I would think Lee's Donuts is, is quite an established uh, business. They must mm-hmm. know something about uh, why they would choose to go and open up there. Well, I think that's an excellent point, Joe. I, I think there there is some restructuring that is happening in some of these larger, you know, chains like, like you mentioned, Starbucks. And uh, I can also tell you there there are 13 other coffee shops within the Gastown area. So we, you know, if folks need coffee, there's plenty of folks, plenty of places for them to go. And yes, I think Lee's made a commitment to this neighborhood um, because they they see it for what it is. It is a, it is the gem. It is the heart of uh, Vancouver. Um, and while it is a, a, a big tourist attraction. I can tell you that our goal as an organization always has been the locals, the Vancouverites. We need them to come down here and enjoy this neighborhood. And so when, a, a, you know, an icon like Lee's Donuts wants to come here, I think that just uh, is a, really an endorsement that this is, a, this is a great neighborhood to visit. You mentioned as well uh, mental health as far as services and health services for everybody. Uh, we've also, I know, talked in the past about housing and that being obviously a very important part of the neighborhood. How are things going with that in that it has been some time since so we were talking about the fires and the loss of some pretty key housing in Gastown? Yeah, I think that um, we, we still don't have any answers on the, the Winters Hotel site. Uh, nothing has moved forward there, but um, the like I mentioned, the, the Cohen Block, that development, um, looking at bringing some market apartment housing as well as social housing into the neighborhood, uh, that's a positive. The other development that I was talking about at 131 Water, uh, that will also bring some additional housing. We just had the uh, Stanley Fountain building open up that had 66 units of uh, market housing that is now fully rented. Uh, there are another 80 units of social housing that are going to be opening up here soon. So um, what, what I like about that is... We're getting market housing and social housing. We need housing in the city across every spectrum, and we're seeing that being built uh, around and in, in Gastown, and we need more of it. There's no question. Wally, it's always great to, to chat with you and have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate you having us on, Jill. Have a great day. We have talked a lot about housing and how to build more, how to get more housing supply on the market, all types of housing supply, except maybe single-family homes, those single-detached houses that we see so many in many municipalities, including the city of Vancouver. Well, Dan Fumano at the uh, province newspaper, he's been on this show many times before, has written a very interesting piece about this, saying that Vancouver is looking to discourage single-detached 
detached houses by actually shrinking the size of them. Council or City Hall is taking a look at some potential changes, and this would put a cap on the maximum size of such homes, meaning if you were building a single-family home on a standard lot, a 33-by-122-foot lot, the maximum size could potentially be 2,400 square feet, and that would be about 400 square feet less than what is currently allowed. But you would be allowed to build bigger if you were building something like a fourplex or something with more units rather than the single-family home. So again, this is all part of a piece that is in the province today by journalists Dan Fumano. We wanted to talk a little bit more about this. So joining the show now is Tilly Kwan, principal of the Vancouver firm Studio Balsian Kwan Architecture and Design. Thank you so much, Tilly, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me on. I know that you were quoted in this story as well. I am curious, what are your thoughts on this idea, the fact that City Hall in Vancouver is considering putting that cap or making single-family homes the maximum size smaller? Well, in general, we actually really welcome the city's initiative to uh, promote the building of more, um, quote-unquote, missing middle housing uh, and by simplifying regulations for low-density neighborhoods. So <clears throat> the idea of actually putting more units on uh, our traditional single-family lots is actually a very welcome um, development. <clears throat> the only thing that we are a little bit concerned about is actually reducing the allowable FSR for single-family homes because I think uh, in their uh, attempt to provide this disincentive for single-family home building, um, they haven't thought about the uh, notion that a lot of Families actually live in multi-generational and other co-living arrangements. Um, So, for example, like a house might actually have like a mother and father and grandparents and other um, extended uh, family networks that live with them. Um, And they also don't take into account that the fact that secondary suites um, right now are a a very important part uh, of the way we live, whether they um, house uh, boomerang kids or allow for a family to have an income generator. So by reducing the allowable FSR, they're actually squeezing the amount of available space for us to actually have livable secondary suites. And there are other really two important parts uh, about this, uh, is that that they're not looking at the overall streetscape and what the reduction uh, of this massing will do to the streetscapes. And they're actually negatively impacting the flexibility of, of the housing stock moving forward. You mentioned secondary suites and uh, and how important those are as part of the whole kind of housing equation. So the mm-hmm. way this is is proposed, reducing that house size of a single family detached, would it not? It wouldn't then um, be different if it was a house with a secondary suite. Um, sorry. So they're basically saying that um, your primary residence, uh, which is like the main house. Uh, would actually be only allowed to have 0.6 FSR. So it is a reduction from the current 0.7. So it's what you talked about earlier, uh, where there's actually 400 square feet uh, less in the main house. And the main house is where the secondary suite is residing. Right. So even if if it was a house you were building with that secondary suite, where where you would have the plans showing, well, there are actually going to be two families or even more than that living here. There is this suite. That suite doesn't count as, say, then it becomes a twoplex or a fourplex and would allow... It is not. No. So a twoplex means there's two different strata units. And in this case, it's just it's part of one dwelling, um, except that you have a secondary suite. So what the city is doing is allowing us to have larger laneway houses, but they're taking that out of the main house. And so there's actually less 
area available for us to put a secondary suite in. Right. And I understand you have launched a petition about this, specifically saying to stop this proposal. And is it for those reasons that you think it kind of misses the mark for what families in some cases are really looking for right now? Yes, exactly. I think there's a lot of um, pushback against people see are these sort of bigger homes being built on the west side of Vancouver. Um, And I think I can understand where that's coming from. But the reality is that people who want to live in single family homes will still build them, even if they provide this disincentive. I think people will still be building single family homes. I think what the city misses is that they're not looking at the reality of how a lot of us actually live. And so while the identification is a welcome development, um, this particular disincentive that they're providing doesn't really make sense in the big picture. Is it something as well, even with the the title or the label of single family homes, like you said, there are a lot of scenarios where it's multi-generational, where there might be some separation in the house, but it's not a fourplex. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a different strata mm-hmm. unit. It, it is uh, something that, that families are making work for them. Yes, exactly. And the idea of multi-generational living or like co-living where like friends or your extended network or community comes and lives with you for for a little while, or this idea of the very um, important secondary suite where, you know, it could house an an adult child for a while, or it can actually be rented out to uh, another family or students to to help you with your income, to help pay the mortgage. Uh, These are all things that uh, we think are not being fully considered here. And with the idea as well, the kind of capping it or making so if it is truly a house that is just for one family by lowering the amount of space by 400 square feet, like you said, if would people still build that? Because again, multi-generational living, living with basement suites or other in a fourplex, that's also not for everybody. It's not what, what everybody wants to do. Would it be mm-hmm. enough of a deterrent then, do you think, that if somebody is, is determined, no, I want just dust this house for my family, I guess it'll be a bit, a bit smaller now yeah i think so i i I truly and the people who uh um are uh supporting this petition uh, and people in the industry believe that people who want the single family house will still build it uh they'll just have less floor space now but they still want to have that privacy of living in the single family house and the reality is that a lot of the uh developers who are building these on in a more kind of um uh, um, in, a, in a more market sort of oriented way, they are already moving towards building duplexes and triplexes because that is the way the market is going and that's what people are able, that is where the market is already. So we find that this kind of disincentive that the city is putting out is actually a little bit moot. Hmm, interesting. Uh, do you see it elsewhere? Uh, I know that this is a city of Vancouver uh, proposal and this is something that the, the city of Vancouver is mulling over. Uh, does it look like this in any other parts of Metro Vancouver or is anyone else doing this? Uh, I've not seen it in other uh, municipalities uh, around us so far. Um, it may be something that municipalities are looking closely at because the idea of um, affordability and relaxing um, uh, zoning to be able to allow for these kind of multiplex um, developments uh, is it's definitely uh, something that everyone is talking about. I know that the I know that Victoria uh, has been. Um, looking at different ways of of um, addressing uh, and allowing for multiplexes, and I know that Toronto is as well as well. And I think that if we look at the history of cities, um, densification um, is just the way that a city naturally go, uh, grows uh, when we have a lot of people and more people living 
um, in our urban environments. Um, so it's very natural um, kind of evolution from like an urban planning perspective. Uh, we just think that um, the city doesn't need to provide this particular disincentive because um, we are already heading in that direction anyways. Uh, one other point I wanted to ask you about, and this is one of the points in the petition that you have launched as well, and, and that it says the, the reduction in allowable built area will negatively impact the flexibility and desirability of renovating older homes. Mm-hmm. How, how does that, mm-hmm. how, what do you mean by that? What does that actually mean? Yeah. yeah so, for example, if we have like, um, say, an older uh, craftsman style house or a house that's sort of built um, you know, pre-1940s or, you know, anything. Um, and the actual uh, floor area, what we call FSR, let's say it is below the 0.7 right now. So uh, the ability to build up to 0.7 is an incentive for people to actually retain those character homes and actually uh, improve upon it by adding more area and making it brought up to modern standards and, and, and actually be usable from for a modern family's perspective. And the city actually has right now in place uh, certain programs that allow, they, they give them uh, kind of floor area bonuses uh, for them to um, retain these older homes. So if we don't have this 0.7, you're only allowed 0.6, then people might not be as uh, incentivized to actually Uh, keep these older homes. Uh, And the other way of looking at this is if we're only allowing people to build 0.6 from now on, that means that the housing stock that we have available in the future to renovate and to adapt um, is just less flexible. Hmm, Very interesting points. Tilly, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, it has been a while since we started hearing about Ozempic. That is the drug that was created. It is meant for people dealing with diabetes. But as you likely know, the side effects of weight loss has made it very, very popular. Several celebrities have talked about how they have been taking Ozempic and it has become a little bit controversial. Well, now more and more people are talking about some of the side effects of that drug. Dr. Tom Elliott is joining us once again, medical director with BC Diabetes. Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks a lot, Jill. It's good to be on your show again. Well, when we talked about this before, we were talking about just that, the popularity of this drug. I think it was just after the health minister had said they were going to be cracking down on this drug being prescribed for people who don't have diabetes. Uh, Is that still the case or is that still happening as far as this drug being very sought after? Well, it's, it's being used even more widely than before for people who don't have diabetes. Um, what did happen was that um, the, the pharmacy that was exporting uh, Ozempic to the U.S. Um, has been sanctioned, and, and that's no longer happening. Uh, but the drug is being very widely used. We're also hearing uh, some more about side effects and people speaking out, uh, saying not only were they kind of uh, taken by this, looking at some of these, what seem to be these amazing stories, a lot of times involved with celebrities, but uh, that we're hearing about side effects, whether it's it's social, psychological side effects and physical. Yes, I, I've, been, I've been aware of those reports. And, um, you know, I think... You know, from my perspective as a prescriber, and I've, I've written thousands of prescriptions for, for these drugs, um, nothing has really changed. 
I, I warn my clients that there's a 10% risk they won't be able to take it because of nausea or vomiting. Um, the, and, 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 you know, we, I, I still hear from patients who can't take it, and then we try to, sometimes we microdose them, we give smaller than the usual doses, and some of them do tolerate smaller doses. But what you've been hearing, what, what we've been hearing about um, uh, from the U.S. Of, pe of people developing paralysis of their stomach for um, for months and years after using it, um, I, I I don't think that's relevant. I I, I uh, you know in the in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, in the in the types of literature that 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 I read, um, Jill, um, we're not seeing that. So I think reports those reports. Um, they're either overblown or, or, you know, sensational, or they're talking about people who have something else wrong with their stomach or their, or their intestines. So I, I, I think the class of drug is still very safe. And um, apart from nausea and vomiting, there really isn't anything to fear. All right, because, with these drugs. because certainly that is something that seems to be getting a lot of headlines lately is that idea of stomach paralysis. So not something that you're seeing a lot with people taking Ozempic, but, but what exactly is stomach paralysis? Well, the, the, the way Ozempic works is that it, it, it does three things. It suppresses appetite, so, you know, you're just less interested in food. But two, it delays the emptying of the stomach. So, so studies have shown that the stomach empties about 40% slower when you're on Ozempic or one of the same drugs in the class. And that, and that is time limited. So within a week of stopping Ozempic, that effect has worn off. So uh, of course the day and emptying of stomach is when people feel full for longer. So they're, they're less interested in food because of that by in emptying of the stomach. And the third action is to improve the body's release of insulin, which is which is why it's so useful in diabetes uh, as well. And so, so is this, do you think then kind of with the kind of all of the, the hype around this and, and people either getting on this bandwagon and thinking this is the, the greatest thing. And I know we talked about this before. Is it kind of coming out in that, like you said, the, there are maybe some cases in the States, but it's not like this is something that's widespread, that people are suddenly seeing this very, very serious side effect. Exactly. I, I, Jill, I'm not worried about it, and I don't think your listeners should be worried about it. Um, I, the, the, these drugs are very effective. They're expensive, um, and, and they're safe. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I think we're going to see more and more use of this class of drug. Should they be used, though, on people outside of people that have diabetes? I think so, yes. Um, you know, obesity is a risk factor for many conditions, for, you know, for heart disease, lung disease, arthritis. And, uh, and people with obesity should have access to these very effective drugs as well. So... So I, I, I'm, you know, currently in Canada, there is no indication, meaning that a doctor who writes a prescription for Ozempic for someone who doesn't have diabetes who's obese, that's, that's a so-called off-label prescription, but I've done it many, many hundreds of times. So I, 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 most family doctors are comfortable doing it.
I, I saw as well, there was another article about this. It was kind of, it talked about another side effect of, of, and I think it's more perhaps a side effect of rapid weight loss. If, if you're maybe obese and you've, you've lost weight rather quickly and kind of having that saggy skin, is it unfair to say, well, that's a side effect of Ozempic or, or is that more a side effect of, of what you've put your body through? It's the latter. It's a side effect of weight loss. So, and, and you know, the other thing that's gotten attention, Jill, is is muscle loss of muscle mass. So, I think it's very important that people who are on weight loss programs do do actually attend to, uh, you know, to, to to using to doing some weight work, to to using their muscles, and and preserving as much of their muscle mass as they can while they're losing weight. And do you think that message has kind of been lost a bit, again, with all of the celebrity hype and the hype about this being this miraculous drug and that you take this drug and you lose weight? But like you say, there are, there are other things you need to be doing to make sure you still stay healthy and you don't lose muscle. Yes, I think so, Jill. I think, and, and I think, you know, I think I need to spend more time reminding my patients of that as well. So, yes, I think it's an important general message. Uh, when you when you go on Ozempic, is the idea that you stay on it for a, a specific amount of time, or is it something that somebody could stay on indefinitely? You can stay on it indefinitely. Of course, that's what the manufacturer wants. Um, the drug it does work as long as you're taking it. You know, of course, if if you if you take it for weight loss, get to your target weight, and stop it, your weight's going to go back to your your beginning weight unless you dramatically change your lifestyle. You know, the, the suppression of appetite is, is caused by the drug. Stop it and, and your appetite's back to its baseline. So, so yeah, I mean, it is designed to be taken long term. Right. Are there any other concerns that have come up for you? Or like you said, that, that you have no problem prescribing this if it is uh, being prescribed for, for weight loss. So are there any other concerns that you've been aware of uh, when it comes to this drug? The only other concern really is cost. It's, you know, at full doses, it's $7 a day. Um, most people don't even reach their pharmacare, their, their pharmacare deductible. So, you know, unless you've got deep pockets or, or third-party insurance, it, it's, it's an expensive drug. Uh, what about the issue, too, of, of the fact that that you're a doctor that would prescribe this to somebody that was dealing with obesity, but with this, this diet culture and, and especially I think with celebrities being involved in celebrities showing this, this huge amount of weight loss and this desire to be thin or to have what, what for many people is considered the, the perfect size, which, which might be a lot smaller than what you're supposed to be or what your body size is. Is there that concern that it's being used by people, not people who are obese, but want to get to that, to what is in their mind ideal small size? Well, you know, Jill, it, it it works, and it works in people regardless of what their starting weight or body shape is. Um, you know, it's the same people have have tummy tucks and 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 and, and you know weight loss surgery and things like that too. So, I think we're just looking at consumerism um, and a drug that's effective. Do I? Do I think it's good or do I think it's right? Um, no, I don't. But but that's what people do. And, and, and the drug is safe and I don't think there's a medical, I, I don't have a medical problem with it. All right. Dr. Elliot, it's always very great to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and making the time for us today. 
A pleasure, Jill. Bye-bye. Well, yesterday on the show, we were talking about the traffic fatality at Maine and 12th Avenue. Sadly, an Uber driver lost his life. We also know a little bit about the driver, a 17-year-old in a vehicle with three other teens that appeared to be going at a very high rate of speed. Well, Sarah Lehman is joining us now, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group, to talk more about fatalities and what happens next. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know uh, Sergeant Steve Addison with VPD uh, did talk about this briefly yesterday, saying if there were criminal charges, those would likely be weeks, possibly months down the road. What kinds of criminal charges could somebody face when we're talking about a traffic fatality like this? Well, the most typical charge that a person may face in a situation like this would be one of dangerous driving. And here, unfortunately, it would be dangerous driving, causing death or bodily injury, depending on, you know, if any other people were injured in this particular incident as well. Um, These are very serious offenses, and they are offenses that, in fact, can carry um, very, very hefty jail sentences up to life in prison for dangerous driving, causing death. Does it make a difference that in this case, it appears that this was an N driver that was out at two o'clock in the morning with three other teens in the car? Well, I think that the police are going to take every single thing here into account, especially considering the fact that a person's life was tragically lost. Um, These types of investigations are very thorough, generally speaking. Um, Police officers will be considering uh, many different factors, uh, and they will likely even call in a number of different experts to look at accident reconstruction and pull data from the uh, vehicles, if that's possible at all. Um, They may also consider uh, different personal attributes when it comes to the drivers of those vehicles, including whether or not a distracted driving could have been a factor or if impairment could have been a factor. So I think this is going to be a very thorough and multifaceted investigation. Are there other ways drivers can be held accountable when we're talking about these types of crashes? Sure. I mean, just because there is a very dire and unfortunate consequence doesn't necessarily mean that there was criminal behavior. And oftentimes we will see Uh, big investigations into these types of accidents and no criminal charges recommended. Um, Sometimes what happens is that police will recommend instead a ticket under the Motor Vehicle Act. If there is a view that uh, no criminal behaviour was actually present, and attributed to the accident itself. So um, there are different ways that police can potentially deal with these kinds of situations, and they certainly aren't limited uh, to dealing with it only under the criminal code. Which I think is, was, is a question for many, especially looking at this crash uh, that took place at Maine and 12th and the fact that police talked about this being the third fatality um, that we've seen just in the city of Vancouver in the past 48 hours. Uh, how, how do police go about investigating? I know they were asking for anybody with information or dash cam video or that to, to go forward, but how else do they kind of gather uh, information and make those decisions? 
Well, police may also be looking at video from uh, businesses, uh, for instance, uh, that are on the street or um, residential homes that might have uh, cameras outside or even traffic light cameras. Um, There are a number of different cameras that can potentially uh, capture uh, information that's very important and relevant to these types of investigations. And they might also be able to track the vehicles uh, beyond just simply Uh, where the um, impact occurred. So that type of evidence is often very valuable evidence in these types of investigations, but it's not the only evidence. Um, As I previously mentioned, you know, they might be pulling data from the vehicles themselves. Uh, There are very sophisticated uh, systems in a lot of vehicles now that are able to keep and record data, such as the speed the vehicle was traveling at, whether or not there were any uh, evasive actions on the part of the driver to avoid the crash, and so on and so forth. That's important as well. Um, Witnesses, of course, uh, their recollection of what happened, if anybody saw it, um, that would be important. Um, There's all kinds of evidence that can be potentially captured in the course of this investigation. We just have to see what ultimately is obtained. Sarah, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.